Good morning and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. And uh, as we do from time to time, switch gears from politics. We're talking about the intersection of law and public policy. We have as a very special guest, Yehuda Buckwhites, a partner at the storied law firm of Weil, Gottschall, and Mangies, a multinational behemoth law firm who has pro bono represented various litigants in Eruv litigation over the past, I don't know, decade or so, maybe even more. I don't want to betray Yehuda's age. I know he's very protective of such a thing. But uh, I also want to thank him for so much of the work because so many people out there, they move into a neighborhood and there's an Eruv, obviously, you know, Flatbush controversy notwithstanding. They take it for granted that somehow this just came about and nobody fought for, to make this happen. So Yehuda, welcome. Thank you for all that you've done and all you continue to do on this issue. Oh. It's nice to be here, Michael. Thank you for your kind words. Okay, so take us back. Take the audience back for a second. Uh, not just, uh, you know, why is there any controversy with regard to an Eruv? Okay, yeah. nobody can see it. Nobody even knows who it is. Most of the Jews who carry within it, they don't actually know where it is. Yes, everybody's supposed to call on a Friday to check and make sure the Eruv is up. Uh, I know, actually, because I have a sister living in Atlanta, their Erev was down for, for weeks on end, and that was a big deal. Because, But otherwise, people really take having an Erev for granted. Should we? I guess you're going to tell me, based on your experience, we probably should not take that for granted. Right. No, we, sh we should not take it for granted. But we also um, should not assume that there's actually controversies everywhere. In the vast, vast majority of places, um, the Erev, an Erev has gone up in, in a municipality not only without any controversy, but with like, um, you know, friendship and, and collegiality and even people uh, identifying it as an example of diversity. And, um, you know, in many, many parts of the country that's happened in other parts of the country where they have an era of there's tremendous cooperation by the municipalities in order to make sure the area stays up. There's a great example in Los Angeles when the, the I-10 was being um uh, constructed and or, or being renovated and they and they had to take it down take down a wall every week and every week on Friday you know Los Angeles put up a temporary wall so that the area would be up despite their construction so for the most part there are good 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 stories there are five not good stories that ended up in public litigation um, and in each one of those instances the the answer to the question of why there is controversy is is one thing only it's it's bias slash anti-semitism and it's people who want to use the aru of coming in as a vehicle to potentially try to keep orthodox jews and other observant jews out of their community and the first two were in the 80s in bell harbor queens and then in uh, long branch new jersey and then and those were were um won um, by by predecessors of mine, and then in um, in the mid in the late '90s, early 2000s, the Tenafly era of um, controversy came about, and that was won by you know my predecessor Bob Sugarman uh, before I got to the firm. And then the matter that that we know about very well, you know, started really in the late 2000s, 2008, and then the litigation in 2011 in the Hamptons, and then following that in uh, Mawa, Upper Saddle River, and Montvale. And in each of those instances, ultimately, you know, the area of litigants won, and the municipalities and the other people who were the haters lost. 
and um, and there were many, many, many different types of legal arguments that we had to go through in order to win each of those. But in my opinion, never were any of the oppositions to them actually genuine. They were all just pure um, anti-Semitism. Okay, so what you've described as far as this history of era of litigation, and I think one of the things that they bring up all the time is that there's an era around the White House, and there's an era of here, and people don't even know that there's an era, there's era of in everywhere. But this litigation all seems to be confined to the New York, New Jersey area, which is, of course, interesting, I guess, at one time, that is obviously the largest concentration of and largest density of Jews and Orthodox Jews in, in the country. Uh, yes, there are in many other cases where there are very identifiable Jewish communities. There are very identifiable Erev or Erevin. But uh, what is it about? What is it in the water of New York and New Jersey that seems to uh, engender this controversy? Right. If you had to so, speculate. Yeah, I was going to say, I wish I really knew. Um, I think that part of it has to do with exactly what you described. So in the middle of the Hamptons case, you know, there was an area that went up in Plano, Texas, which is a very small Jewish community. And it went up. It was like viewed as this like nice little thing for this small group of people who want something and it really doesn't have any impact on anybody else. And people are like, oh, that's nice. You know, um, and I think that um, in a lot of parts of the country, it's like that. There are obviously in major metropolitan areas, like you said, around the White House, um, in in Los Angeles, in Dallas, in Chicago, in 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 you know lots of the country. There there are these Ruben. I think it frankly probably it probably has to do with the fact that there are. It's not just a large concentration of people, but I think that in some instances. The um, the the it it's it really becomes very densely concentrated, um, and I think that that's what some of the people who are trying to keep people out of their community are focused on. And you know, frankly, I mean, this is the United States of America. Like, we don't tell people that they're not allowed to live someplace because of their religion or their color of their skin or any other thing like that. Um, a great great, I guess, part uh, part of the story that I remember very clearly. When I was arguing in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the, the you know, is one level below the Supreme Court, and it covers the appellate court for uh, New York and Connecticut and Vermont, um, and this was in one of the Hamptons cases. And I remember one of the judges asking me, and he was a judge from upstate, from an area, from a town that didn't have an, an error. Um, the closest era, I think, was probably the one around uh, in Albany. Um, and and he asked me, you know, if I was uh, driving on the, you know, am I in an era right now? Right. Yes. And, and the answer is in Foley Square, downtown Manhattan. There actually at that point in time, at least there was not an era. So I said, right this minute, you're not inside an era. But if you get on the FDR drive and you drive north by, you know, half a mile or whatever, I had the exact number, you will be in the area and you will have no clue when you pass into it. Um, there's not going to be some sign all of a sudden you're in the area. The only people that will know where the area is are the people that are interested in it. And everybody else, it will be a completely complete non-event to them, just like all the other kinds of things that we have on telephone poles and otherwise. And I think that resonated, um, obviously we want, um, but I think that that resonated, you know, very well for him, that it's something that's important to the people who are, who, who, who want it and who need it for their religion. And it's completely um, unobtrusive and, and, and not a, uh, and, and nothing, nothing that, that anyone else would have any problem with. 
other than if they didn't want Orthodox or another observant Jews living in their community. Okay, so let's step back for a second on the background here. Now, how did Wild Gotchel get involved in these cases? How did Yehuda Buckwhite get involved in these cases? I'm sure you didn't go to a major uh, commercial uh, legal firm, uh, one of the largest in the world, and thinking, okay, I am going to make my specialty era of litigation. It seems like a pretty narrow field also, right? Where There's a totality of five cases or seven, eight cases in history. Right. So a few points. So first, the firm got involved because Bob Sugarman, who is uh, you know one of my mentors and who was a very, very, very involved person in in um, a lot of uh, Jewish areas, including in the ADL and in civil rights. Right. Um, he was national chairman the, of the ADL, I think, at one point. He was he was the national chairman of the ADL, and then he was the chairman of the Conference of Presidents of major Jewish organizations. After that, that was when he retired from Weill. First, he was the head of the ADL. Then he was the head of the conference. So it's a pretty storied career. Um, so he was asked to get involved with the Tenafly case, which he did. Um, and when I first joined Weill, it was at the very tail end of that in, in the appeal uh, part. And um, so I didn't get involved in that. And then when the Hamptons case came up, he asked me to get involved. Now, um, why did he ask me to get involved? So he knew I was very dedicated to pro bono. And we had done Jewish pro bono work before this, not for not in relation to area things, but in, in other situations. And for me, I, I was always somebody who I've always believed that, you know, we didn't need to give back, that the people who are lucky enough to be in a position that, you know, that I'm in, that a lot of people like me are in, is, is you have an obligation to give back. And I remember, you know, being really struggling with this question when I was in, let's say, in college, because I thought I was going to do something that was, you know, full time public service. And I remember speaking to a friend of mine whose father said to me, no, no, you, you don't. I mean, you could do both. You really could. You could work at a big firm and you could use that as a platform to do the kinds of things that other people are not going to be able to do because you can bring resources to bear on a situation like this and really take something on and bring it to the next level. And that's what I've tried to do. And, you know, we did it in those two area of cases, um, you know, the Hamptons and then also with the Upper Saddle River, Montvale and, and Mawa. And then subsequently, we've done that with other matters, like, um, you know, for example, the Shabbos elevator case that we did in, with Fort Lee uh, um, just last year. And, and, and the way I look at it is I feel like, and, and we've, we've had, you know, it's good for the firm, it's good for our teams, it's good for the communities, obviously. We get people, we get some of our associates to have really incredible experiences doing constitutional litigation, which is not something that we typically do around here. It's usually much more, you know, financial and commercial. And, um, and, and they get great experiences, we get great experiences, and the people get great experiences. Okay, so on the law, I guess, let's take for a second, uh, you know, there's state level litigation, there's federal litigation. Uh, is there, was there ever a time that you or Bob or your firm felt that there was a weak legal standing for Eros and uh, or that you thought the courts were going to that we're going to put a roofs in jeopardy, uh, plural. Yeah. So I, I was, I, I, I knew that based on the, the arguments that they were making against them and the way that an era was set up, the way that we really set them up in, uh, in, in modern times, really with the wires and, and with the utilities that, that they should be, um, permissible. Um, that the um, that it really is a reasonable accommodation of religion when what you're talking about is the ability to put lefties, you know, on poles 
Um, there gets to be a more complicated question sometimes when you're talking about an Eruv that were to acquire a lot more. Um, most of the, the Eruvs that were involved in the litigations were a combination of natural boundaries, um, either natural, like actual natural or man-made, you know, pre-existing boundaries and lechis on poles. And the part that was challenged in the litigations were the lechis on the poles. And I was sure that we were going to win. However, there were many, many, many steps along the way where there were new and, and different challenges brought. And with each one of them, it took time, it took effort, and it took a lot of convincing in order to get um, the courts in each instance or the towns in certain instances to understand you know, that, that we were right, that we had a First Amendment right and there's a reasonable combination of religion to allow these, these groups to put lechis on poles. There were arguments that we were, um, um, it was impermissible under the First Amendment rather than required under the First Amendment because, you know, we were establishing religion. That was the Establishment Clause argument. The Establishment Clause argument is debunked by the fact that we're really not asking the municipality or here the public utility to do anything. And it's developed over time that these poll agreements, you know, with Verizon, with LIPO, with um, all the other groups out there that really all the municipality does is allow you to put something on the poll just like everyone else. And they take a fee just like anyone else putting something on a poll. It's up to the area of association, each institution to do the repairs. It's up to the area of association to put them up. And it's up to the area of association to comply with traffic laws and whatnot. So there that debunks the establishment clause argument. Then there are other arguments that, oh, it's a sign. It's a sign under these different towns' sign laws. Okay, well, in the Tenafly case, that was one because Tenafly did not um, did not enforce their their sign law. Well, we ran into a problem in Southampton because they actually did reinforce their sign law. So then the question becomes: Is it really a sign? Is it sending a message? Is it um, you know uh, uh, have words on it? Is it has a page? Does it fall within the definition of this? A different municipality said, well, it was an encroachment, encroachment, encroachment onto the street. Yeah, but it's only a half an inch off the pole. So in each of these instances, there was there was a, an argument, a new argument that had to be debunked. Then there was, oh, well, Verizon and LIPA and and in on Long Island and then Orange and Rockland in, um, in, in uh, Rockland County and then in New Jersey. Well, they didn't really have authority to do this in the first place. And then you have to have, you know, litigation over that and win that too. And what we've seen, you know, is basically every possible argument that someone could come up with in order to try to say that the Eruvin, specifically the Lechis, were illegal under in some way or just not permitted. And we had to debunk all of them. And it took years and years and years and thousands and thousands of hours of, 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 of lawyer time in order to do that. And, you know, obviously we're proud that we were able to do that and we're able to do that, you know, at no cost to, to the communities. Um, and, and so was I ever, I, I, there are different points in time where, you know, any, any, any lawyer who doesn't get a little bit nervous in any litigation, it means it's probably time to hang it up. But, um, but, but I, I knew we were right. And I knew that even if we lost at one level, we would just take it up. You know, I mean, the initial case in the Hamptons start, started out with a loss, right? We moved for a preliminary injunction and we lost. And I knew we had to either 
Um, you know, we had to then go back to the towns where we could go up on appeal. And we ended up going back to the towns, litigating with each of them, litigating in the state court, ended up on appeal in both state court and federal court. But I knew that eventually, ultimately, we would win because we were right. Well, obviously morally right. I Hopefully uh, you mean legally right as well. But actually talk about the the – the differences, I, I, I mean, as a non-lawyer and you know, for those in the audience who don't understand the differences between state and federal court sure. and those levels and how those play into, I mean, we just assume religious freedom, automatically I go to federal court, right? It sounds like that's the cliche. I'll see you in federal court. You know, it seems like a better idea of, you know, you know freedom of religion. This is a freedom of religion case. I assume, uh, you know, for the, for the uninitiated, I think you're, what you're telling us is that this is a little more than just freedom of religion. There are other issues yeah. at play. Yeah. So the, you have to start off with the default that everything is supposed to be in state court unless you have a reason to be in federal court. Um, so the reason that we and also that the First Amendment, even though it's part of the federal constitution, is not enough to get you into <clears throat> federal court. So the ways that you got into federal court were one is a civil rights statute, like you just mentioned, which is, you know, uh, 1983, where you say civil rights were being violated. And the other one is RELUPA, which is the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. And there's a lot of prisoner cases on that. And there's also, let's say, shul and school cases that relate to building. Um, we took a position that the lachis on the pole were a license within RELUPA, and therefore we got into federal court on, on, on those bases. However... What we were told in, um, in, by the federal court in the Eastern District of New York when we lost the preliminary injunction motion was what you're really getting at is whether or not there's a local law in each of these three municipalities at the time, the West Hampton Beach, town of Southampton, and the village of Quag, whether they have a law that would prohibit these lachis and whether you have an exemption from that law. And that's not really up to me to decide. Now, whether he was right or wrong in making that decision, that's how he decided it. And then we had to go back and make an application in each of these municipalities. Then you get into a deep question within each municipality of what and, and, and the question in each municipality in Quag was it, is there an encroachment? In Southampton, was it a sign under their definition? In West Hampton Beach said, oh, we don't have a statute. That's why that case stayed in federal court um, for a period of time. And then, and then the question after that becomes, okay, so now we're in the municipality and the municipality is saying no. Okay. Well, the federal court we think is going to say yes, but we can't get there yet until we finish with the state court because you need to exhaust remedies, right? So this happens a lot. And I guess people hear about it in employment cases. You have to go through all of the processes that the state lays out before you can then sue. That's what the federal court wanted us to do. Then you get into the question of, okay, who's in charge really? Is it the state or is it the municipality? Because the state institutions, right, who, which were the utilities, were fine with it. They gave us the licenses. We had the authority to go ahead and do that. The villages didn't want us to. So then there was a tension there too. So you were out of federal court temporarily, and then you had this tension between the state and the municipality. Now, our federal case was never dismissed. It continued on, and we, and we just had it in parallel. So we had the federal case going on um, against the three municipalities. We had a village, in, a village matter within Quag. We had a village matter within the town of Southampton. And then there was a separate case that you know about that Verizon and LIPA brought against 
against the the, the town of um, the village of West Hampton Beach. And then separately, there was this community organization called the Jewish People Opposed to the Eruv, who also sued in West Hampton. What Beach. a great so name! Five different cases. <laughs> yeah, and then and then and then the and then the town of Southampton case that was appealed, and we went to. Um, uh, state court and, and one there too. So it's very complicated. And the reality is you can't do this if you're just some guy and you can't do this if you want to get paid because this would have cost, you know, five, six, seven million dollars even then probably would have been 10 now um, wow. with, with, with the way things go. And, and you know, the, 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 you know, the great thing about our firm is that, you know, they were really dedicated to this. They thought it was the right thing to do. They thought it was good experience for the team. And they, and they, you know, were behind both. And that's it for this week here on Spin Class here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph. See you next week.